Today is April 19th, 2014, and this is episode 102. This program is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Cryptocurrency is a new field of study. Consult your local futurist, lawyer, and investment advisor before making any decisions whatsoever for yourself. Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin, a twice-weekly show about the ideas, people, and projects building the digital economy and the future of money. My name is Adam B. Levine, and today we're digging in. I'm absolutely fascinated by the MetaCoin protocols, and yet somehow we've never had anyone on from the Colored Coins project. Today we remedy that as I discuss Chroma Wallet with developer Flavian Charla. Then, cryptocurrency is a self-organizing situation. I recently spoke with Eden Iago about the data organization its goals, aspirations, and how their approach differs from the Bitcoin Foundation. Later, I first met David Bailey at the very first Let's Talk Bitcoin conference meetup in San Jose last year. He's now the editor-in-chief over at Why Bitcoin Magazine, which is seeing remarkable success at onboarding those just learning about the technology. We talk about the project and what's up next. We bounce back to Texas to join Stephanie for the final interview from that conference. Marco Strang is the primary at Genesis Mining, a new attempt at an old problem. How do you mine when you don't want to run miners? And finally, rehabilitate, don't liquidate. Rehabilitate, don't liquidate. Brock Pierce, William Quigley, and John Betts are the individuals championing the SaveGox.com movement. They make their case to you, the listening audience, on the situation at Mount Gox, why it matters to everybody, and what you can do to help whether you lost funds or not. But first, Jackson Palmer, creator of Dogecoin, at last month's Coin Summit, I cornered him outside the conference to talk meme coins, tipping, and emergent culture. Enjoy the show. Uh, interview 6, Jackson Palmer, creative Dogecoin, Coin Summit Day 2. Jackson, thank you very much for joining us today on Let's Talk Bitcoin. Thanks for having me on the show. So, Dogecoin. Why Doge? So, it, it was just kind of right place at the right time. I, uh, I, I was following a whole bunch of altcoins late last year. I noticed an article from Adrian Chan from Gorka that he was kind of, you know, saying that Doge is the best meme. It's the first good meme, and it's the best meme out there. And I think it's because it, it's kind of uncorruptible, and in, in, in that you can't, you, you know, you can't, in, you know, introduce some of the uh, prejudice tones that get laid over other memes onto Dogecoin because it's just too pure. Right? <laughs> okay. And so yeah, so I went home one day and I uh, just tweeted, you know, going to invest in Dogecoin. It's the next big thing. And at this point, it wasn't a thing. Um, and then it just kind of spiraled from there, and my co-founder Billy got in touch with me, and we made it a thing. Okay, so you guys made it a thing, and then what happened next? I mean, like it just immediately, bam, like a rocket. That's or right. Yeah. So we, uh, I, I put Dogecoin.com live, which originally didn't have any download links. It was just the, it was just the logo, essentially. Um, and uh, and then yeah, we created the client. We actually made it a thing. We put it on Bitcoin Talk, um, obviously. And Billy and I are like, you know, it'll probably fizzle out in a couple days. Nobody will be interested in it. Um, so we started mining it, and we're like, why is why is this getting hard? What hundred mega? What like what's going on here? And and then it just completely grew from there. So like we didn't create the Facebook page, the subreddit, any of that. Um, that was all community created. So you know, one of the interesting parts about Doge is that it's brought in a lot of people to the Bitcoin space who really weren't in the Bitcoin space before. Why did that happen with this one and not with something else? Yeah, look, I think. It's it's and it's really interesting the demographics that that, that uh, Dogecoin's been able to hit and I think that is because um, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in general has this kind of nasty stigma attached to it. Um, you know the, the the press often you know every week there's somebody being arrested, somebody doing drugs, somebody losing money on Bitcoin and it's and it's all through the mainstream media and so I think 
um, Dogecoin uh, has puts a friendly face on that um, and it's something that people see every day on their Facebook and Twitter feeds, right? So they see, they are very familiar with the Doge meme and so um, it's kind of like a foot in the door for these people that previously wouldn't at all be interested in cryptocurrency and would avoid it like the plague. They start reading about Dogecoin and they look it up and they realize, oh, it's a cryptocurrency and they read the Wikipedia article about cryptocurrency and they're like, oh, Bitcoin isn't that bad. You know, all this stuff I've been told about Bitcoin is actually a lie. It was never hacked. Mount Gox was hacked, not Bitcoin. And so it's like a really good way of getting people in and educating and building awareness. So one of the other interesting things about Dogecoin, of course, and kind of one of the problems of Bitcoin, it's like it's not, it didn't start off as a problem, but no. when, when you start small, right, when you started Dogecoin, you know, I've talked to, I talked to Josh Moland uh, mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago, and he said that he mined for like a day and got like a million Dogecoin, <laughs> <laughs> you know, on like the first or the second yeah. day. So, I mean, so... That there's an element of getting something for nothing that then turns into something that's not nothing anymore at the end of it. You know, Bitcoin had that at the beginning. People mined and they got paid with stuff. Nobody knew what the yeah. value was. So, I mean, like, do you think that, that that's the future for Doge? Or do you think that Doge stays this sort of happy-go-lucky free thing? I think, I wouldn't say happy-go-lucky, but I think it, 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 it should remain self-aware and, and, and not get too elitist and never lose the welcoming kind of feel that the community has. That's one of the things, you know, people enter our community and people all want to help that person better understand. Um, I don't think Dogecoin is marketed as an investment opportunity, and I think it's a really unfortunate thing that follows Bitcoin around, is that um, people aren't selling Bitcoin to their friends and family properly. When they tell the, uh, their friends and family about Bitcoin, they're like, you should buy some because in a year's time you might be rich off it. And that's just short-selling Bitcoin. Like, it's, it's a revolutionary, economy-changing cryptocurrency. Like, explain, you know, the actual benefits of it. So I think, um, really, Dogecoin, I think, is going to cement itself as an internet currency, um, potentially with a lower value. But I, I know Josh, the way he likes to describe it, is you're throwing change at people on the internet. And, and it's fun. Um, and I think it's going to facilitate microtransactions. I think the microtransaction argument is really interesting, especially since, you know, I mean, you guys are a fork of Bitcoin, right? Of Litecoin. Of Litecoin. You're a fork of Litecoin. Okay, so, you know, again, there are some kind of long-term scalability problems built into that Mm -hmm. in having, because, I mean, like, again, Bitcoin was friendly to microtransactions until it wasn't, and then there was a scaling problem, and so they kind of changed things. So one of the things that's different about Doge is that it's actually, it's, it's deflationary, because the assumption is that more people are going to use it later than now, but yep. you continue to produce new coins on an ongoing basis, unlike Bitcoin, which has a definitive end, yeah. right? Yeah, we have we have kind of deflationary inflation, yeah. or dogeflation, which I like to call it. <laughs> I like that. And um, it's, 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 a, it's a constant block reward. Past our final block um, and cap, it is a static reward of 10,000 doge per block. And that's really an incentive to keep miners pointing their hash power at the... Uh, at the network and securing the network for us. Um, I think that it's interesting. Like, we're going to reach that cap by the end of this year, 2014. And it's going to be a really interesting kind of study in what Bitcoin will one day face, yeah. right? Is, is, is when mining doesn't become as profitable as it once was, a miner's going to stick around and they're going to move on to the next thing that they can make their money with. Well, how fast is the difficulty readjustment? Because it seems like that comes into play here a lot. Well, no, absolutely. So we recently, and, and this is a really good example of altcoins not being competitive, but working together to help cryptocurrency. We recently um, worked with the developers of another coin called Digibyte, um, and they have a difficulty retarget algorithm called DigiShield, which is to help against profit switching multi pools. Um, so these these multi pools have an algorithm that looks at what you can cash out to BTC for the most, and then it switches their entire hash rate to that coin. So they got like 50 giga hash, and they just point it. And when they do that on a smaller coin, the difficulty just shoots through the roof. 
they go away, and then in our case, everybody had to wait four hours for it to retarget. <laughs> Crazy, right? But it's only four hours. It's only four hours. But now, we, uh, with, with DigiShield, um, we retarget every block. So every 60 seconds, our difficulty retargets. Wow. So you don't... So, so then... Has this been tested? Does this fix the problem? It's been tested, and it was really amazing. So I actually didn't even have to implement it. Like, we have a really active development community who got together on IRC, uh, on GitHub, and we were hashing this stuff out. We had some um, some people very experienced in modeling. They used MATLAB, and they looked at the difficulty retargets. They threw a whole bunch of hash it on the test net. It was really, really tested, and all in the space of a couple of days. So um, we're really confident at, in uh, DigiShield and the retarget we have now, and um, yeah, I think it's things like this that we can potentially that are good learnings for Bitcoin um, and something that it might, as Bitcoin's hash potentially diminishes in the future as it becomes less profitable, is something that Bitcoin might have to think about. You know, one of the interesting value layers that's being built on top of things like Bitcoin are these meta protocols, right? So uh-huh. you've got like Counterparty and Mastercoin. Yeah. Right now they're being targeted specifically at Bitcoin because Bitcoin's the biggest use case. Mm-hmm. But I think that there's a really interesting argument to be made about using something with a fast blockchain like Dogecoin mm-hmm. that already has, you know, I mean, your community is pretty much as big as the as the Bitcoin community in a lot of capacities. That's correct, yeah. It's like <laughs> we recently probably eclipsed Litecoin. Um, and so we have a very active community. But the transaction uh, fees are a lot lower. They are. So this is an interesting sort of scenario. It is, so, isn't it? Yeah. so again, like we've in the last couple of days, I'm not sure when this is going to air, but in the last couple of days, we've seen the Bitcoin developers, specifically Luke Dash Jr. and Jeff Garzik, yep. kind of come out against these protocols, and it looks like they're maybe taking some aggressive steps to, you know, they've uh, reduced the op return, which is basically the mechanism by which these protocols use to yes. actually yeah. use the blockchain. They've uh, so, so it looks like there might be a fight there, and like Bitcoin maybe doesn't want this stuff. So mm-hmm. if, for example, you know these these protocols did not find a home on Bitcoin. Is that something that Doge would be interested in talking to them about? Totally. I think I, I think there's a lot of interesting use cases there. One of them I really like is um, the idea of a decentralized exchange all built within the blockchain and with multi-sig and a bunch of other stuff. You can do that and that is amazing. Like I think you know, in a trustless network, um, I think it's fantastic to be able to decentralize exchange of currency. So that's fantastic. I think, and the, the NXT guys are doing that already. Yeah. Um, so that's really cool. Um, Look, I think Bitcoin, they, they have to be careful. Like, I, I, the blockchain technology, while revolutionary, is still in its infancy and where, you know, disk space still does cost. <laughs> so it's like, you don't necessarily want people bloating up your blockchain. Like, when I hear, you know, distributed Dropbox, I'm like, am I going to have to, you know, is my, is my uh, data directory going to be like hundreds of gigabytes? What? Like, I, I think we shouldn't be scared of having multiple blockchains, to be honest. You know, like, what I'd like to see is even if we don't get to the point of a decentralized exchange, have, you know, why doesn't Cryptsy or another exchange's um, ledger run on blockchain technology? Full transparency, like, a blockchain is a blockchain, and I I don't see any issue with having multiple blockchains, because then you can choose as a consumer to trust one of them. Well, I mean, the, the only argument I think against that is that you fragment the user base, but I'm really coming to believe increasingly as we move forward that there just isn't another future for us. That, you know, like, inevitably, whether it's this particular instance or the next set of innovations that come about, you know, it seems like over time Bitcoin is kind of calcifying because they have been successful, so they have to be conservative, but you really don't. No, and I think blockchain, t- like, so really we're here, we're here and we're talking about Bitcoin, but... 
I think the real key technology is blockchain technology. And we may have implemented it, or Satoshi might have implemented it for currency, but it has so many other uses. Like DNS, I, I think within the next five years we're going to see DNS decentralized. It's, it, it's, you know, it's needed an upgrade in a, like for a long time. So I think there's so many other applications of blockchain technology, and that'll result in several blockchains that exist across the internet sphere. But that's fine Like if, if the bulk of users choose to go on that blockchain. I don't know what I want to do for the final question. You got any last words? Last words to the moon. <laughs> to the moon. Jackson Palmer, thank, thank you very much you. for your time. Thank you. <laughs>
uh, more granularity. So in that case, you would say, select like let's say ten thousand satoshis for one share. So tell me about uh, tell me about Coin Prism. So this is the first web wallet that actually supports the color coin. So you didn't invent the color coin concept, but you're the first one to successfully implement it. So there's also another wallet called the Chroma Wallet, which is a client-side wallet, which you need to download and so on. So CoinPrism took a different approach. It's more of a blockchain.info type of website. So it's more like, it's if you can call it the blockchain.info for color coins. So it's you can just uh, sign up in five minutes, uh, or even less than that, and start issuing your coins. So it's uh, very straightforward to use compared to downloading a client and... Uh, yeah, that is something that I've noticed about, you know, these web wallets. When you're talking about the layered technologies on top, whether it's counterparty or... I don't know if this is the case with, uh, with colored coins as well. I'm curious. You have to re-index the entire blockchain in order to look for these specific types of value. Is that something that you also have to do with uh, colored coin with a full client? Obviously not with a web client. So, yeah, so you, you don't necessarily have to do it. There is a, that's also one of the benefits of uh, colored coins that you can use. Uh, it's not uh, exactly SPV as you do with Bitcoin where you can uh, just check the block. What does SPV mean? So it's simple payment verification. So you, uh, with Bitcoin, you would just check that your transaction got included in a block to verify the payment. You cannot really do that with Colored Coin because it, it may be a valid Bitcoin transaction but invalid for, co for the Colored Coin uh, purposes. So you'd need to backtrack uh, the coins back to the issuing transaction. You don't need to actually index the whole blockchain. You can backtrack. So it's not as efficient. If you index it, it's going to be faster, but it's going to take more resources. I see. You said the Chroma wallet is a lot like blockchain.info. One of the things that's interesting about blockchain.info compared to a lot of the earlier wallets is that it actually doesn't hold your keys. And so therefore, blockchain, if, you're, if you are individually compromised, that can be a problem. But when it comes to the wallet itself, if the wallet itself is compromised, that's not so much of a problem. Is that the case with your wallet as well? Yes, we use the same uh, security model. So we encrypt the keys on the client side and then we send them before it's sent to the server. And the password is used for decrypting the keys. So um, as long as the password is not compromised, even if the database may be compromised, but that's not going to uh, put the keys into Jeopardy because... This seems like it's a model that people are using with increasing frequency and a lot of success, frankly, as a lot of these other compromises happen. When you hear about a blockchain.info, it's usually a phishing thing or you know, some sort of secondary thing rather than them actually being compromised. So again, like, do, you see, do you see this being the model moving forward just for web wallets in general? Uh, so yeah, it's been the model that's been the most successful so far uh, because most of, lot of, lots of the wallets that all the keys have been compromised before. Whereas uh, blockchain.info, I can't think of a, a time where it's been, there, there has been a compromi uh, like a, a hack that, that, that was on the blockchain.info's fault and that resulted in loss of the coins. So with regards to CoinPrism again, you, know, you said that the wallet is up now? Currently only in closed beta, so you need an access code uh, to access it. Uh, but How long do you think it's going to be in closed beta? Uh, about a month, so we plan to release for the mainnet in about a month. Right now it's still testnet as well. So uh, if somebody was interested in your project, are you looking for any help? Are you looking for early adopters or early testers? Oh, yeah, we're looking for early adopters and testers, and especially if people have a use case where they would, they would be able to issue um, colored coins that would be maybe shares or it could be smart properties or uh, anything that would uh, start to bootstrap the usage of colored coins, they should reach out to us, and then we can work with them to, to work on their use case. Well, sounds great. Flavian, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Adam. 
This is Chris Joseph bringing you news on Next, the first true second-generation cryptocurrency for April 19th, 2014. With every passing day, more and more projects are being pitched, proposed, and designed by the Next community. This week, a group of people unveiled their plans for Lith, an online multiplayer game built in the Unity engine that will embrace the features of Next by allowing virtual resources to be harvested to create goods that can then be traded on the Next marketplace. In other news, version 0.9.6 of the Next Core software has now been released, moving features like eight decimal places for Next, least forging, partial canonical signatures, which fixes transaction malleability, and even more to the live network. Everyone running a node is urged to upgrade. For more general information on Next, head to nextcrypto.org or mynxt.org. And stay tuned for more news on Next on the next Let's Talk Bitcoin broadcast. Uh, interview to Eden Yago, uh, March 25th, 2014, uh, Coin Summit. Uh, Eden, thank you very much for joining us today on Let's Talk Bitcoin. My pleasure. So we've been having an ongoing conversation about the data organization. Yeah. Can you kind of give us a really basic overview of what the data organization, you know, why it came into existence and who it is? So in 2007, Lehman Brothers collapsed and took a lot of people's money with it. Uh, Bitcoin is an amazing industry because that happens to us every two months. (laughs) We have Mt. Gox, we have Trade Fortress, we have every single week we've got some other scam or some other site that's insolvent or disappears or has its bank shut down. There are so many risks involved. And I think our response up until now has been inadequate. Uh, We tend to have a lot of arguments on Reddit and Bitcoin talk and at the conferences and everyone's like, more regulation, less regulation, we don't need regulation. Regulators will never be able to touch Bitcoin, regulators are going to destroy Bitcoin. And it's a very binary conversation, which is almost always on on a linear curve between somewhere between laissez-faire, zero regulation and absolutist uh, Fed getting involved in running Bitcoin for us. And it's misleading because we develop this new technology in order to do something different, not to have the same old argument that we've been having up until now. And we're going to continue as users and as an industry to suffer until we actually become creative about how we make sure that we're protecting ourselves and our users. And so what data is about is coming together as an industry to figure out a new path forward. And that means fighting yesterday's battle which means that making sure that exchanges are audited, that, tra- that there's transparency, that, that um, users know where their funds are going. It means figuring out what tomorrow's battle may be. So, for example, are users placing their funds with businesses that are dangerous because the regulator is likely to shut them down? And it also means talking to the regulators, talking to the banks that lobby the regulators, and helping them figure out why this is an important step forward and, uh, and, and, and why just coming up with arbitrary regulation is going to be damaging to everyone. So the data organization is a fairly new organization. A lot of the things that I'm hearing you say are things that the Bitcoin Foundation kind of already does, kind of, sort of, right? Yeah. So, so what, is the, what is data doing that's different than the Bitcoin Foundation, or how do you view yourselves as, you know, what, what's different between these two organizations? So I don't think there's very much similarity between Bitcoin Foundation and data, actually. Um, Bitcoin Foundation is a foundation which is focused around developing and promoting the use of Bitcoin. Um, One of the great things that the Bitcoin Foundation does is it supports a lot of the core devs 
And it had also it had also been an organization which has gone out and lobbied uh, for Bitcoin and and Bitcoin related currencies. As data, that's not what we're doing. First of all, we are agnostic as to which cryptocurrency or digital currency is going to be important. Maybe it's maybe it's one, maybe it's all of them, maybe it's some combination that we haven't seen yet. Second, we're not there to help develop the technology, and we think that's very important. We think it's very important to separate the development of the technology from uh, the laws and the rules of men. Uh, if we start to combine those, it's not kosher. It's like combining milk and meat. And what we will start to see is we will start to see various... The, the more the same organization which is dealing with the regulators is also dealing with the technology, the more the regulators are going to want to deal with the technology itself. So we think there should be a, a, a Chinese wall between those two things. So I'm hearing uh, there should be. But again, in practice, I think that a lot of the people who the regulators are talking to are Patrick Merck, who's you know with the Bitcoin Foundation. So yeah. do you view data as sort of taking over that role? Or do you think... I mean. I'm just trying to figure out where no. we're in the pantheon so of what's I, going on. I, I, Patrick Merck is um, on the board of Data, huh. uh, and so he he's uh, doing two roles. And you know, I I, I don't want to uh, have an opinion. I don't, I, it's not my place to tell the Bitcoin Foundation what to do. Um, my sense is that uh, the Bitcoin Foundation has been doing an excellent job and really has been on, the only player around up until now. Uh, data, we're modest in what we're trying to do. We, we don't attempt to represent um, the, uh, the entire uh, Bitcoin world or the community. We are an organization of companies who have come together um, and nonprofit organizations who have come together as interested parties in the growth of this industry, primarily to make sure that our users and consumers are protected and that they know that they have someone that they can trust. And um, we don't intend to uh, to uh, develop the technology itself. We think that that kind of separation is good. And at the moment, the truth of the matter is, I think the Bitcoin Foundation have kind of been forced to do everything because there was no one else. As we mature as an industry, as, as a technology, uh, I think we'll start to see more and more specialization with people focusing on the things that they can do best. I see. So the data organization, what does data stand for? Data stands for a Digital Asset Transfer Authority. And so the reason we chose that name is, A, it's catchy, it's data. Um, but beyond that, uh, we decided to call it Digital Assets in part because we wanted to move the conversation away from Bitcoin. Because Bitcoin, as you're well aware, is only used for porn, child pornography, and uh, drugs. <laughs> so we're told. And, and to discuss it more as a technology which is going to be important to the future of finance. And... Um, and we hope to be an authority, not in the, uh, in the sense of uh, the U.S. government, but in the sense of an academic authority, which is to say our authority is there because people recognize that we've put in the work, put in the time, and they volunteer to abide by the regulations so that we can all be safer. So not cryptocurrency. You say you're cryptocurrency agnostic. It's not about Bitcoin. It's about cryptocurrency. Are you specific to one geographic location or another, or is this a global organization? No, it's a global organization. We have uh, 30, slightly over 30 companies who are currently members, of whom 15 are from Europe and Asia. The rest are in the U.S. The U.S. is still the leading country in terms of the volume of activity. I would even go so far as to say we're not even in favor of cryptocurrencies. I think cryptocurrencies are the future, but um, we have a number of companies who are doing sort of a more traditional, centralized 
uh, currency-based... Uh, Could we just generalize this to tokens? Would that work, or do, do, are you talking about some systems that don't have tokens? So, too? And, and that's the other aspect of it. So we think that colored coins, uh, uh, bit shares, uh, Ethereum, these are all really interesting types of way of digitizing value. And so it's digital assets. It's not currencies. It's not tokens. It's, it's really how we as individuals, businesses, and, and, and people can transfer value between ourselves in a digital age. Recently, Data had an election, and you actually brought in your first board. You know, so it sounds like the organization is starting to spin up. You've got 30-member companies. You know, what's, the, what's kind of in the near-term future for Data? The uh, two most important things that we are doing right now is, first of all, we're putting together a, uh, we're looking to put together a department which will be focused on consumer protection. Now, exactly how that will look, we're, not, we're currently debating, but what we envision is a place for consumers to be able to report complaints, uh, a place for them to report their suspicions and possibly um, get those addressed. Uh, someone who will be able to investigate companies and also an organization should be able to suggest a way to audit various companies in the space and uh, provide information on who's compliant and who isn't. Um, the second thing that we're doing is we're putting together a number of roundtables around key aspects of the uh, industry so that we can come up with best practices. So we want to have best practices for how to create a secure exchange. We would like to have best practices for how um, to bring miners together so that we make sure that um, there's no collusion and, and that uh, mining remains um, the, the, the uh, commodity uh, which, which supplies the, the, the basis, the backbone of the uh, uh, blockchain without interfering with the users and the same thing for wallets, etc. So all of the core aspects of where the industry is. The first thing that we're doing right now is we've collaborated with the World Bank and we're putting together a conference in Washington, D.C. Everyone is invited, but we expect to see uh, a lot of regulators. Uh, Lorsky from um, New York, from New York, who wants to create the bit license, has been invited and he will be the keynote speaker at this conference. And what we're trying to do there is we're trying to bring together the best minds of the industry with those who would be interested in regulating the industry so that we can provide them with a better understanding of what it is, what is the promise that we can provide, and, uh, and what kind of regulations are likely to harm both the user and the growth of innovation. So that's uh, on April 10th and 11th in Washington, D.C. Uh, is there a website someone can check out for that? Yes, yeah, so all of this information is available at dataauthority.org. You can also, if you have a Bitcoin company or are an individual who wants to be involved. I was going to ask about that. Yeah, what are, the, what are the qualifications? What types of companies are you looking for? Do you take individual members? What is the, you know, what's the value of being a member besides supporting the concept? So we do have uh, individual members. The primary advantage of being an individual member is that there are many people in our community who... Um, are very interested in the success of this industry and would like to have a voice in making sure that that we as an industry uh, protect ourselves and our users and are self-directed in this respect. Um, so we've made it uh, relatively inexpensive for individuals to join. Uh, the annual uh, membership for uh, individuals is $1,000. Beyond that, there are... Uh, Start, uh, a $2,000 uh, membership fee for startups and then most of the companies who are members are paying $5,000. Um, this is obviously much more expensive than the Bitcoin Foundation which is another differentiator between us. We're, we're seeking to have highly committed members who are, who are involved on a daily basis um, 
Do you anticipate members being involved? Because one of the criticisms about the Bitcoin Foundation is that individual members haven't really had much of anything to do. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so we, we seek to make sure that our, our uh, uh, member companies are all involved. Very often, uh, the company is the member, but there could be multiple people from the company who are represented at different panels of, uh, of uh, the organization. Um, so we are much more of an SRO model, which is what's known as a self-regulatory organization, than, uh, you know, sort of like the community-backed uh, organization, which is the Bitcoin Foundation. I see. On a personal note, and I, I most certainly don't speak for data uh, on this, one of the issues that I've had with the Bitcoin Foundation is that a lot of people outside of the community have come to believe that the Bitcoin Foundation speaks for the community. Right. I would and, agree with that. Uh, that is a perception. Yeah. And, and to my mind, nobody speaks for Bitcoin except for Bitcoin. Um, and so I think one of the reasons that we've also kind of made it explicit and apparent that we don't speak for the community is by sort of having this additional tier and, and, and being very focused on what kind of members we're looking to have. So, Eden, you know, we're talking here in the capacity of data, but you're involved with a couple other projects that are, to me, more interesting than data is. And I'm wondering, what's your involvement with that? What, what, what do those projects have to do with data? And are those things completely separated, or does this somehow play into a larger picture for you? So, for me, all of this comes back to the moment I discovered Bitcoin. Uh, I, I, I was reading, I think it was probably Slashdot, and uh, I read about Bitcoin and uh, immediately spilled my coffee all over my laptop. Uh, so that was the, the first way in which Bitcoin cost me money. Um, and, and my thought at that moment was, this is going to be amazing for six months and then they're going to kill it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and a lot of people think that you know, regulators can't kill Bitcoin, but that's not true. Uh, the reason Bitcoin has value today is because we're all speculating as a community that it will have value in the future. But look what happened with China. That was one country. The regulators are, they have power, a great deal of power, and they can misuse it. And if that were to happen, they could make our currency so illiquid or so uh, uh, encumbered that no one would use it, at which point even the most hardcore would find that they can't trade with anyone. And so everything that I've been doing since then has, in one way or another, been around making sure that we can keep Bitcoin safe. And I actually think that we've passed a certain point. I used to worry about whether or not it will survive. Now I worry about what kind of soul or character it's going to have. And so a lot of people are aware of the fact that I've been working with the, um, and looking at options in, with various governments, and in particular with the government of Honduras to create a zone or multiple zones which would have uh, legal autonomy and where cryptocurrencies through currency competition would have equal footing with any dollar or euro, um, which would create a place where we knew we would be safe in using these. The other thing that I've been involved in, obviously, is data. And my company, Epifite, is, um, is involved in helping financial institutions, large financial institutions, um, and also Bitcoin financial institutions uh, work together. Um, so we've helped a number of exchanges uh, find banking partners and deal with the regulatory trouble that they've had. And we're also helping to bring large banks and financial institutions into the industry um, because the more we can partner that way, the stronger we will all be. Eden Yago, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.
Interview number five, David Bailey, Why Bitcoin, March 26th, Coin Summit. Today on Let's Talk Bitcoin, we're joined by David Bailey, editor-in-chief of Why Bitcoin magazine. David Bailey, Why Bitcoin? Well, uh, why not Bitcoin, I guess, to start with. But um, Why Bitcoin magazine is designed to basically explain Bitcoin to your mother and uh, to help onboard new people into the community that aren't you know, active on Reddit. They're not active on the Bitcoin talk forums. They're a 40-year-old or a 50-year-old that has the resources to do something impactful in the space but is just uneducated about what's going on. So you're different from Bitcoin Magazine, which has been kind of the other print publication that's been around, notably because you're printing a lot more magazines. I mean, a lot of their business seems like it's on the online side, whereas you guys are really focused on the print side. Why is that? Well, so in Bitcoin, we talk a lot about like push and pull transactions. Well, we kind of think about push and pull marketing. And our approach to marketing is to actually engage a user that isn't expecting to talk about Bitcoin. So we're on coffee tables at Lamborghini dealerships, yacht clubs, and you know, country clubs, Napa Valley wine vineyards, Aspen ski resorts. So um, we're looking for the person who goes into the doctor's office and sits down and is basically captured for 45 minutes with nothing to do. And they see this on the table and they say, I've heard of Bitcoin before. What's that? And we try to write a narrative that engages them. You open the first page and it kind of pushes you through the magazine. So um, we're different than Bitcoin Magazine because our audience is completely different. I mean, we're not geared for the community. Our content in the magazine rarely changes from issue to issue because we're just presenting a, a guide, you know, what is Bitcoin doesn't change issue to issue. Our approach is to reach new people with every magazine. We don't ever want the same reader twice. It's, you know, we have different distribution outlets that allow us, like, we print 30,000 magazines this quarter, 30,000 magazines next quarter to a completely different group of people. So um, Bitcoin Magazine, on the other hand, is geared for the community. I mean, it's news and analysis. Uh, but if my mom picked up Bitcoin Magazine, and she has actually, she has no clue, you know, what's going on. And they're like, she's not that interested in, you know, the inner workings of how the foundation works. I mean, that's just kind of over her head. So uh, completely different audience. And, uh, you know, I think we found a very good niche in engaging people. I mean, we get calls into our office all the time. Uh, we talk to our customers every day, our clients, and it's working. It's getting a lot of people, you know, it's also great for merchants that accept Bitcoin who maybe only 1% of their customers actually pay in Bitcoin. But, you know, the other 99%, they come in and say, oh, I see that you're accepting Bitcoin on the window. What is that? A merchant doesn't have an hour to explain it to every single person that asks that. I mean, they'd not be in their business anymore. They'd be in the business of explaining it. So, it's perfect for a merchant to have a stack of magazines. Someone says, what is Bitcoin? It's, oh, it's this new digital currency online. Here, take a magazine and you can get educated about it. Right, exactly. So guys like you and I are responsible for explaining it. <laughs> they can just focus <laughs> on being merchants. So, you know, so you've, uh, we've just seen your second issue go out. This right. started last year. You know, so would you classify this as a, as a success? I mean, it sounds like it's uh, gone pretty well. It, it's, yes, it's a huge success. Um, we're working with about 40 different Bitcoin companies and growing. I mean, at, just at this conference, we're probably... Uh, gain five new customers and um, what's going to be exciting is in the next issue we'll have our first non-Bitcoin company advertisers so uh, Samsung for example or um, you know Rackspace so uh, people that want to reach out to the Bitcoin community or want to reach out to Bitcoiners in general because our magazine's at every conference and etc but who aren't accepting Bitcoin yet so that's uh, a pretty exciting development. And uh, we're also working on translating into multiple languages. We're going to be launching a Spanish and Chinese edition. So there's a lot of projects in the uh, pipeline that, you know, it's a lot of work, but it's definitely a big success. And our, and our advertisers are very pleased with the results. 
Awesome. So uh, you said that the content doesn't change from issue to issue. So is it worth, I mean, like if I've read this magazine before, is it something where I should bother reading it again? Because, I mean, the articles, you're saying that it's not targeted towards the community, but, you know, I can think of David Perry, Andreas Antonopoulos. You know, you go down the list of people who, you know, actually have something meaningful to say about it within the community, and you have a lot of names represented there. Right. So I have to be a little bit uh, quiet about what I say, but there are some projects in the pipeline that maybe would give uh, those writers a little bit more opportunity to uh, speak their minds about current events, but uh, that's not exactly ready to be taken off the back of the burner yet. Um, As far as does the content change at all? It, it, we tweaked the content, so I think we added a new article in this issue about uh, merchant adoption by Trace uh, Meyer, and uh, I think next issue Nick Carey's going to publish an article about starting a Bitcoin-only business and trying to like a call to action to start your own business. So we have some new content coming in. We have talked about you know we have these magazines at every conference generally, so people can just take a couple home with them and you know get, share it with whoever they want. But I, I think we're going to do maybe a couple things that the uh, industry would find interesting. I think we're going to do uh, basically a market data page. We're at all these conferences. I mean, we go to every single conference. So I think we're going to start collecting analytics at the conference about, you know, about Bitcoiners and then publish that data in the magazine. So that's kind of an interesting thing to look at. And we've also been really interested in uh, Red Herring. I don't know if you're familiar with this, the old Internet magazine. And they had something called the Red Herring 100, which was like the 100 hottest startups in the Internet space. And we think that could be uh, interesting, you know, reach out to our readers, say, you know, what startups are you excited about, and kind of publish that data, get a little bit of competition, go. <laughs> so make the whole thing a little bit of a two-way conversation instead of you just talking to them. Exactly, right. So um, it, I, I think there is a reason to pick up each issue, at the very least, just to see what new companies are advertising and, and you know, what people are doing. Some some of our advertisers like to announce new projects in the magazine, and, um, but Mostly, you pick it up and you share it with someone else who doesn't know about Bitcoin. And we need to get them in the space and get them excited about what's going on. So our very lofty goal for 2014 was to onboard a million new Bitcoin users, which is a huge project. But uh, it's, you know, we have over 45,000 online readers. Um, we have well over 60,000 magazines in the wild that you know, hit multiple people before they kind of hit end of life. And uh, we're going to be increasing our print count as well as going to the Chinese and Spanish market. So there is a uh, slim chance that we hit the goal of at least talking to a million people, um, but we're trying our best. Well, David Bailey, sounds like you're doing great work. Thanks for being in this space and you know providing a service like this. Well, thank you for having me on your show, and uh, hopefully uh, we'll be back again soon with some exciting news down the road. CryptoKit is the world's first Chrome browser Bitcoin wallet. It's the easiest, fastest Bitcoin wallet payment system. With a simple one-click install, it takes just seconds to get your wallet set up. And because CryptoKit finds the address and payment for you, there's no more fussing around or tab switching. CryptoKit is more than just a wallet. It comes with a preloaded PGP-encrypted social network, news feeds from Reddit and Google, and up-to-date charts from exchanges. Finally, CryptoKit directory allows you to make two-click payments with any of the BitPay merchants. Once you install CryptoKit, you won't need anything else. For more information or to download CryptoKit, visit CryptoKit.com.
Let's Talk Bitcoin is heard each week by thousands of people who are participating in the new digital economy. Our listener base of Bitcoin owners, miners, investors, technologists, and merchants is growing fast. We offer a limited number of short advertising slots in each show to keep our listeners engaged and to provide maximum impact for our sponsors. If you'd like to talk to us about Let's Talk Bitcoin, send us an email at sponsors at letstalkbitcoin.com. This is Stephanie from Let's Talk Bitcoin, and I'm here talking with Marco String from Genesis Mining. Hello. Hi, Marco. Hi, Stephanie. Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. So your company is making ASIC miners or mining farms for script mining. Is that right? Yeah, well, we are actually, we are the world's biggest hash power provider for script. Yeah. And you sell mining contracts? Well, yeah, we offer our clients um, to uh, the ability to rent um, our um, our miners uh, that are in the most efficient infrastructure and uh, piece together with the most efficient hardware. And uh, for our and our clients just have to very convenient get the hash rate really fast. Uh, for, Immediately in one day, they just decide, okay, I want to get in, and uh, next day they have the hash power. They don't have troubles with uh, heating, they don't have troubles with the noise they make, uh, and they don't have troubles with, especially if they want to go a bit bigger into it, uh, into getting a, renting a house or a place to, to do that. Right, so you take care of all that stuff, and this is interesting because I have actually mined four Litecoins myself. Ah. I've talked about it on the show, and I set up my own mining rig with uh, <laughs> four graphics cards, and ah. it was a pain, and it was a pain <laughs> to maintain, too. <laughs> it, it kept breaking down, you know, it's just something you have to babysit all the time. So if someone buys a contract with you, they wouldn't have to worry about any of that stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Uh, <laughs> a lot of, we know a lot of, we, we, we know a lot of miners and uh, and a lot of people just, they, they see how, uh, how, how there is these negative aspects like the noise and, and the heating and uh, we take care of all that and we take care of this in a very efficient way. Um, as I said, we have, uh, we, we are located in the most efficient uh, spots for electricity. We also have uh, alarm systems and um, we take the necessary security. There are, there are people ar- around the farm 24-7. And so, so yeah. Okay, tell me more about how this works. Like, where are you based and what does the facility look like where there is all this, where this mining farm is happening? Sure. Uh, we are based in uh, basically around the globe. We are in uh, Europe, in Asia, and uh, also in America. Um, our farms are, uh, yeah, pretty big, and we are uh, expanding pretty fast. How big? <laughs> like a warehouse size, yeah, or yeah, really? Yes, it's okay. a warehouse size. So you have warehouses, and how do you determine where are the most energy efficient spots to put them? Uh, well, uh, we checked several uh, locations, and we also have some deals with uh, with the power providers to reduce them more, even more. Yeah. Okay, and so when you walk into a room, like, what does it look like, and what is it cold? Do you change the temperature? <laughs> well, uh, our well, our locations basically they're pretty loud uh, because uh, a lot of miners make a lot of noise. Uh, 
and uh, well the heating is pretty good regulated we have some professional cooling systems that take care of the temperature so that uh, the miners are mining in the most efficient okay and do you literally have like somebody monitoring uh, the the hashing and making sure every, there's 100% uptime on all sure. these units sure uh, well uh, we uh, it, or as I close mean, to that as you can get. 100% is, uh, yeah, I as mean, close to <laughs> yeah. you know, um, we have, of course, um, scripts and programs that determine uh, immediately if any uh, rig is failing. And then, of course, we would uh, we have a, a, a bigger buffer for that case so that our clients wouldn't suffer from any downtime. What's the burn rate like? How often does a card just crash and fail <laughs> well uh, i gotta be honest you hear a lot of that stuff in the forums but um i can say we have we have a lot of gpus and uh burning is very rare if you do it uh, it's actually zero if you do it in the in the right way of course if you stick pieces together that doesn't belong together the the, the probability is pretty high that there occurs a burn but if you know what you're doing uh, you can mitigate that and wow. even in that case, there are um, you, you can find uh, we have uh, some special uh, technology that detects if there would be a fire and immediately erases them without destroying the hardware. Wow, I see. So, I mean, are you only mining for one type of coin or do you mine for different types of script coins? That's a good question. Um, we offer our client... Uh, to actually mine every coin, he, every script-based altcoin he would like to mine. So um, he can just take his hash, hash power he gets from us and say, well, I would like to uh, mine 30% uh, Litecoin, 40% Dogecoin, and yeah, make his own portfolio in that way. And also we offer him, of course, the, uh, the ability, and that's at the moment um, uh, what we offer... Uh, what is the, the most favorite uh, um, product for our clients to just uh, mine the most profitable altcoin and transfer it back to Bitcoin. Um, and we do daily payouts in Bitcoin then. So he can decide. He can say, I'm a believer in this coin. I would like, only, I would like to point my uh, hash power only to this coin. Or he can just say, well, I trust you guys. Uh, you have a good experience in this. Just uh, mine the most profitable coin. Uh, trade them to Bitcoin and pay me out with Bitcoin. Wow. And so I know this ratio changes, but um, is it almost as profitable to mine for script coins and then convert them into Bitcoin as it is to just mine directly for Bitcoin right now with your <laughs> kind of hashing power? Well, it's not almost. It's, it's more, more it's sometimes more, more than double. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, uh, it, of course, depends on uh, the price of the uh, altcoins. There are really huge opportunities, especially if some altcoin really blows up. Uh, but generally, uh, there is always uh, a, a huge opportunity. And if you compare to some um, providers uh, offering pure uh, SHA-256 uh, uh, hash power, you will probably find that our product is much uh, more profitable. We have the historical data and you can compare them easily. How did you get into this? Like, what gave you the idea? Oh, I think I'll just start a giant mining farm for script coins and have locations all over the world. Like, how did you get to that point? 
Well, uh, we, we all started small. Uh, we quickly uh, realized that it's profitable and uh, realized the potential in the market and grow. And, and then we came actually, we, uh, we had a, a bigger uh, farm running uh, in Europe. We had uh, w one of our um, um, guys uh, is, had also a big uh, farm. And then we just decided, well, let's go, let's go together and make this together. And now we, we increased the farm. And uh, I think in the last two weeks, it tripled our farm. So there's a huge demand. And we try to do our best uh, to get it to the clients. <laughs> Wow. And so sometimes some of this equipment is in short supply. You know, sometimes it's hard to get, uh, I think it's ATI 7950 graphics cards, right? So what do you do about that? Yeah, well, uh, because we have this large uh, farm, we uh, have good um, offers and we have good uh, opportunities and know the right person uh, where to go. And we get our hardware. Mm -hmm. And. I know that the, there are people who are claiming to make uh, ASICs that mine script coins. Are you planning to upgrade to those? Are any of those ready for prime time yet? Or it seems like you're just still going with graphics cards, right? Well, uh, we are going with graphic cards. We did uh, from the beginning, uh, but we also didn't uh, miss the opportunity and also have uh, ASICs already. You have them already, yes. okay. We have them already. Uh, anyway... Um, the performance of ASICs is uh, not that dra dramatic for uh, the GPUs as it was in the Bitcoin world. Um, but we, we do the most efficient uh, mining and ASIC is part of that, yes. Do you have your own mining pools? We are uh, setting it up at the moment. Um, and as soon as it's ready, our clients will uh, have privileged access to this pool. And um, maybe we will also open it up for public later. But our clients, of course, will, will maintain the privilege mm -hmm. all, all time. I just wonder, I, I mean, do you solo, like you're a big operation, do you, do you, are you finding blocks by yourself, you know, basically? We could. Um, we will do it if the, if the pool is ready. Uh, but at the moment, we are pretty fine uh, just determining the most efficient and most profitable multi-pool or generally pool and just switch our uh, hash power to those. And... Uh, yeah, so we this is the, a, a huge opportunity for our clients because they don't need to need to search every every day what's the most profitable. We just determine it uh, automatically. So I, what I'm wondering is um, what about what is the size right now of your total hashing power at all the facilities combined with Genesis Mining? Um, well, I. It's 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 a lot. Uh, I, I may not uh, give uh, concrete uh, details, but it's. We have uh, several thousands of GPUs, and it's, it's growing more and more. And also from the uh, newer technology ASICs, there is also coming a big uh, supply. Right. So are, are but, we talking... Um, what is important, of course, is that uh, there's a trend of altcoins uh, who develop, um, who, are, who can only be mined with uh, an algorithm that is... Uh, 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 that is not mineable with uh, ASIC technology, so we want to keep this opportunity up for our clients and also, of course, keep our uh, uh, GPUs, and they are still very efficient and very profitable. So I mean, are we talking like terahashes of total hashing power or larger <laughs> than that? Or? Well, a Give me an order of magnitude. Yeah, well, uh, in the script world, the terahashes... is <laughs> a huge amount, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> because I think uh, Litecoin is about 90 gigahash. Oh, okay, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would be right. So you wouldn't have terahashes, <clears throat> but 
Giga we, hashes. We have giga hashes, yeah, yeah. several, yeah, of course. And it's growing uh, all the time because, as I said, I mean, the demand is huge. People, a lot of people uh, see this opportunity and we offer the most efficient infrastructure and the best way to, to get the most profitable out of the altcoins. I'm just wondering, like, if you were to take all of your your entire infrastructure and point it all at, like, Doge or something, mm-hmm. or, or point it all at Litecoin, would you have enough to overtake, you know, 51% of the network? <laughs> well, uh, besides... Maybe some of the smaller ones? Well, if there's a very small coin, uh, that may be the, the thing, but uh, you, you rest assured that we don't want to have any any bad thing in, in, in our mind mm-hmm. uh, because we would shoot in our own legs. You know, I mean, we want the best for the mining world. We want the best for the community. And we don't think about anything like that. Right. I, I just wonder if people uh, accuse you of that or, you know, start to wonder, you know, because sometimes when mining pools get really large, people will say, oh, they're going to do a 51% attack. Have you ever had anybody kind of point the blame at you? Well, there are people, yeah, but uh, <laughs> they, I mean, I, I can really calm them, calm them down mm-hmm. and, uh it's the best for us, of course, that uh, the, the, the market is doing well and that is best done by not uh, thinking about stuff like that. Mm. Do you just see a kind of a profit opportunity here uh, or do you have like um, an ideological reason that you prefer like script coins over SHA-256? Well, I think there are lots of uh, script coins who have some unique uh, economic features mm-hmm. and um, it's really worth... Uh, I think it's it's really good that they are there. They they offer a lot of um, newer uh, opportunities for cryptocurrencies, and offer a lot of people also to diversify their funds. And especially if they are pretty much into Bitcoin and want to just uh, spread their risk. Yeah. All right. Anything else you want to add? Uh, well, and also, I mean, uh, there is uh, the opportunity uh, for. For other, uh, for, for uh, cryptocurrencies who, um, like for example, this economic experiment that is doing in Iceland, you know, um, I think it's a great economic experiment. And uh, I think there will a lot of uh, newer, te- newer experiments and newer ideas coming up uh, in the altcoin world. And we can, we can be all part of that with our, uh, with our infrastructure and with our whole mining farm. Yeah. Great. So what's your website? Where can people find you on the internet? You can find uh, us at www.genesis-mining.com. www.genesis-mining.com. All right, Marco. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, uh, Stephanie. Today's another first at Let's Talk Bitcoin. We're happy to play host to a strategy brief intended for the Bitcoin community at large from Brock Pierce and the other folks at SaveGox.com. We'll join them now. Well, Adam, thank you for, uh, uh, for giving us an audience. Uh, you've got me, Brock Pierce, here. Uh, John Betts, who would be uh, assuming the role of CEO of Mt. Gox, replacing Mark in the event that uh, we can uh, avert a liquidation in favor of a rehabilitation. And also uh, William Quigley, uh, who's uh, part of the syndicate that's uh, led this effort to save docs over the last seven weeks. Uh, William is a longtime venture capitalist. I'll, I'll let everyone uh, introduce themselves. Again, I'm Brock. I've been in the digital currency space since the late 90s. Uh, I've been following Bitcoin since its inception, and I've been working 
more or less full time on building businesses and making investments in the ecosystem, including the underlying currency as well as others, uh, for about two years now. And um, you know, as a result of that, uh, having seen the uh, the failure of Gox, from at least my perspective, I saw this as quite a tragedy for the industry. Not so much for us as insiders. We do all recognize. Uh, unless, of course, you've lost pointer or, or cash there, and, and I feel for everyone that has. But um, as insiders within the industry, we understand that Bitcoin will survive. Uh, and over the long term, clearly, Gox is not going to uh, uh, alter the long-term course of everything that we're doing here. But in the short term, it certainly had a very negative um, – it's created in terms of amongst the general public – a lot of very negative responses. I, I can't even count how many people came up to me following the collapse of Gox that said, Brock, I'm really sorry that Bitcoin failed. And just explaining to people the difference between Mt. Gox and Bitcoin, because most people are just reading headlines. And uh, I think amongst the general public, it certainly had a very negative reaction. And for those that were on the fence thinking about making uh, investments or jumping into the space, I, I know it's had a, a very negative reaction. And of course, most of all, for all of those people that have had um, uh, coin and cash there. Uh, so I do believe that uh, the failure of Gox uh, is going to have a negative reaction for uh, a very negative implications for those that have lost money, as well as amongst the general public. And then perhaps most of all, uh, it certainly created a green light for regulators. Uh, and I don't think we've seen all of the negative impacts that are going to come from that to kind of jam through just about anything they want. Uh, um, and I think demonstrating that when banks fail, uh, governments often have to step in, that the Bitcoin community is such that it's capable of self-regulation, it's able uh, to self-correct and heal, and not without a bailout from anyone, just by people from the community stepping up and trying to make the most of a bad situation, which is what we're attempting to do here, and I think uh, we'll walk through in greater detail. Uh, William, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, this is William Quigley. So I... Uh I've been involved in a lot of uh, early stage company financings over the years uh, and have uh, a pretty extensive background in financial services. As it relates to uh, Bitcoin and Mt. Gox, my interest in trying to do something for Mt. Gox came from understanding some of the things Brock spoke about, which was what would happen if Mt. Gox failed and not just to the people who had coins and now weren't going to get anything, but more broadly, what processes were going to be put in place to administer a company like Ox? That was a particular uh, concern of mine because I had a concern that because there's so little understanding of what Bitcoins are and what, a, what cryptocurrency is, my concern was that we may find that the court system doesn't know how to administer a company in receivership like Mt. Gox. And every concern I had has been realized. Essentially, the Japanese court has decided that Bitcoin really is not something they, they have jurisdiction over or really appreciate or understand. And they assign very little weight to the creditors who are owed Bitcoin. And this is really troubling and, and it's not necessarily an easy thing to educate even the Bitcoin community around. But I want anyone listening to this to really understand that this is a precedent setting event. 
Mt. Gox is the first real bankruptcy of a Bitcoin company. Yes, it was bankrupt in, in Japan. Uh, it would have been better, I think, if it had happened in the U.S. We have a lot more protections. But the concerns we have are all being realized, which is given the court's very limited understanding or non-understanding of cryptocurrency, their first order of business, it seems, is simply to liquidate the business. And even that part of what they're doing is being done in what I would say is a very amateurish way. Everyone who has any assets in Bitcoin or who runs a Bitcoin company should be very concerned by the fact that the Japanese courts have decided in a matter of weeks that rather than go through a comprehensive analysis of what is the best outcome for creditors and customers, <clears throat> they, have, they have jumped right to let's liquidate. And if we start to see this sort of practice happening any time a, a Bitcoin company or cryptocurrency company gets into trouble, uh, essentially we have no protections. And my view is that any company, including a Bitcoin company, should have its day in court. And setting precedent now is the best way to ensure that going forward, companies that get into trouble and the creditors who extend any sort of, uh, of credit to these companies, including deposits, are properly administered. And that's one reason why we, I think we, we, we need the Bitcoin community to understand whether or not they have any assets with Mt. Gox, they too are being affected by this because where goes Mt. Gox and the procedures put in place to administer the company in bankruptcy that sets a precedent for all the other companies that shall follow. And John, why don't you uh, jump in? I'd like to introduce myself. I've been you know, building companies for over 20 years, starting with the internet infrastructure companies in the early 90s, and the last 12 years focusing on Wall Street <clears throat> companies like Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, where we were building the, the, in the early heydays of electronic trading and, and automated trading, and seeing a lot of the challenges that Bitcoin's been facing in exchanges in the early days of, uh, of Wall Street trading. And I've been working with Brock and William and our other partners, Matt and Jonathan, for the last two months to lead this effort to take over Mt. Gox and to look after the creditors. Um, it's been a very interesting experience. Um, and I must say that I'm very encouraged by the support from the community for our efforts. And a lot of people are realizing that if this is not done in private hands, as William has articulated, to lead the effort to rehabilitate Mount Gox, and this goes through the Japanese courts, it's going to be a, a very detrimental, particularly due to the customers. And I think that if we can set a precedent here to fix our own and to restore this and to make whole for the customers, not only is it good for the existing ecosystem, but it demonstrates for all those that are watching Bitcoin on the outside, and whether it's the other participants that we need to help increase the value of Bitcoin uh, and the Bitcoin ecosystem, as well as the regulators that are looking in the air to say that, look, Bitcoin is safe. It's run by responsible people who you know, will take care of this, will step in if need be for this ecosystem and help. And it's you know, my investment in Bitcoin is safe. And, it's been really good with, uh, you know, since we've uh, launched SaveGox on Thursday, savegox.com, we've been getting an incredible response from uh, creditors and also people that, are, that aren't creditors that have been giving an outpouring of support that's in there. 
you know, over the next week, <clears throat> I can't understate how important it is for us to get our message out there and get our message to the supervisor of the, in the Tokyo District Court that uh, liquidation is not the right way to go, that this is not company property that was stolen. These are customer assets that are in the possession of the company. These customer assets need to be returned to the customers. And, you know, and, 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 and the courts really need to look what's in the interest of the creditors and not those who are being protected by this bankruptcy whose interests are being put ahead of the creditors. The options as they stand today appear to be one of two things is going to happen. One, the liquidation as was presented earlier this week is going to continue on down that path. There's zero possibility those coins are getting distributed back to customers anytime soon. On average, a liquidation bankruptcy in Japan takes 10 years. What will happen is those coins are going to be sold through one of a number of potential options, but those coins are going to be converted into fiat so that there is a large balance sheet of cash to pay all of the consultants, lawyers, auditors, etc., who over the next number of years are going to be trying to figure out what to do here. And on average in Japan, 3% of the, uh, uh, of the funds end up in the hands of creditors. So if we took an average here, customer coins, which I think everyone wants their coins back. I don't think they want them converted into fiat. But again, if we take Japanese averages, people will get their money back in about 10 years uh, and it will be very little, uh, if anything. Yeah. The alternative to that is a rehabilitation plan, which in, entails getting people back their coin as coin as quickly as humanly possible. If I may add my way, it would be the day after the rehabilitation is concluded, though we do need to understand exactly who is owed what and make sure that those are distributed on a prorated basis as quickly as possible, which means we need to figure out what happened, distribute the coin, get the business back up and operational, and hopefully some of the community will come back and trade on that platform with an entirely new set of infrastructure and systems, none of the old docs as we know it, an entirely different management team, including the CEO, John will be replacing Mark, and proper control systems and government governance and segregation of customer funds. But again, in a worst case scenario, assuming we fail at getting the exchange operational, assuming we fail at rehabilitating the exchange itself, customers are still better served in a rehabilitation process where people that understand the business, who understand Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, are in, a, are in the control position to make sure that those funds are distributed back to customers, specifically the coins, as quickly as possible. So the option is a liquidation where I think it's a horrific outcome in terms of precedence, green light for regulator, customers getting little, if anything, a long time from now versus people getting their coin back, at least what's left of it, as quickly as possible and an attempt to rehabilitate the business where we're committed to getting everyone back 100% of their money and coin over some period of time, which we hope to be successful at through the resurrection of the exchange and people coming back and sharing those revenues into a, um, a restitution fund for creditors potentially down the road in a, a Gox coin fashion, providing an opportunity to convert liability 
into equity, assuming that's of interest to people, not an obligation, but it will be an option we hope to present. And again, if we're successful in the same way we're seeing significant financings in this space, we would attempt to finance this business in a way to get capital in faster so we can get it back into the hands of customers that are at a loss here. So I think the options are pretty clear. Uh, and I think once people begin to understand option A and option B, it's very, very difficult, whatever your opinion is of Gox, whatever your opinion is of uh, whatever your opinion, I don't know how anyone can conceivably suggest a liquidation where lawyers essentially get to feed off a carcass for potentially as long or at least an average of 10 years. Well, customers are not getting what they need. I've been on phone calls for the last two days with various creditors from around the world who had in some cases pretty much everything they had tied up in this because they believe in Bitcoin in the same way that I do and I know many of us do. It's almost almost religious to some of us. And when you have that much faith and confidence in what we're doing and the long-term potential and implications, some of us have made extraordinary bets on our belief system. And unfortunately for many of those, it involved banking with the wrong institution, that being Mt. Gox. And as a result of it, some of these people are going to lose everything or almost everything and, and, it's, and it's, it's, it's horrible. And I think that there is an opportunity to do something other than stay the course or the path that we're on. Yeah. And this is William again. I would say to everybody, whether or not you have coin in Gox or not, but you're, if you are part of the Bitcoin community, the more visibility we can shine on this process, which means, of course, stopping immediately the liquidation. Because a liquidation not only means, as Barack has, has mentioned, very little recovery, but it also means that this process becomes opaque very fast. Because once the administrator, this is the, uh, the, the bankruptcy court, begins to uh, assume responsibility for the business, very little communication is going to be presented to all of the creditors and, and other people who care. Now, some will say, well, there's almost been no communication to date. Well, we agree, and that's one of the reasons we thought management just had to be replaced. But beyond that, very little is going to be understood because the administrator at that point is really, that the administrator's boss at that point are, are, is the Japanese court system. It's not customers. So one of the things we wanted to do immediately once we obtain control of the business, and that's still the, the objective, is to begin providing far better uh, communication with the community about what is going on. In Japan, for instance, and, and of course we all had to get up to speed very quickly on this particular process, uh, as I've said at the beginning, it's, it's inconvenient that this is happening in Japan uh, for various reasons. One, of course, there's a language barrier, but the other is that uh, the few governments who've come out and said either they recognize Bitcoin or they don't, um, uh, Japan falls in the category of really saying we don't really assume any value is in Bitcoin. On the one hand, you could say that's a very laissez-faire policy, which for some of us that's fine, but it becomes a trouble spot when a bankruptcy court says these Bitcoins essentially – are non-existent or they're, they're of no value. And if a creditor has a, a, a liability with the company, 
but the court says we don't recognize that as a as a real thing, you run into the problem of not having any standing as a creditor. And one of the things Brock alluded to and John did was was saving Mount Gox and the save uh, Gox dot org plan dot com dot com is simply to ensure that all of us uh, have a way to voice the fact that these creditors are real people. They believe that their assets are real and that they want a process in place for identifying who they are and when they're going to be paid. And, and, William, and, if I can uh, add, add in there as well, <clears throat> you know, a lot of the customers have come to us and creditors and people in the community have asked, what can we do? What do we need to do? Um, and there are a couple of things procedurally as well as the message that needs to get out there that, that William and Brock have been alluding to. The first is go to savegox.com. Register with us, subscribe to our newsletter. We'll keep you uh, up to date with, with our developments that's in there. Uh, you know, as we have the voice of the uh, of the creditors, we've been asked to coordinate a voice of the creditors by the supervisor, and to present this uh, the support for a rehabilitation. Um, so please do this, uh, and you know, we'll be in touch with you. And uh, in terms of uh, what else you can do is we'll be releasing a, a this creditor support letter on the Segbox site um, that you can submit to the supervisor. Uh, in support of the of this plan, the other thing that's incredibly important and and been one of our biggest frustrations over the last two months is that there has been no forensic accounting still to date as to what has happened, why customers' funds were stolen, and what customers' positions are. And I know that uh, the Mancox launched this site again, so customers can look at their positions. Uh, it is our firm view that those aren't necessarily accurate that there have been some irregularities in the accounting database at Mount Gox. And the only way everyone can be uh, certain about what their positions are so that they're not taken advantage of for a second time during this liquidation process is to demand a full independent auditing and accounting of what happened and what customer positions are and to ensure that the customer assets are, are being protected. And the other item there is to make it very clear to the supervisor that these are customer assets, these are not company assets, and the customer assets need to be returned to the customers. And uh, so please come on and, and, and register on savegox.com and, uh, and, and give us your support. Yeah, John, let me just uh, close this out since I think we're about out of time. But again, uh, time frame we're operating under, we believe we have less than a week to avert the course. All the employees are going to be let go. Everything is going to end up in a point very soon where there's no ability to avert a liquidation and put us back on a track of a rehabilitation. We need your help now. This can't be done without the support of the community, without the support of the creditors. Come one, come all. We welcome everybody's help. We're open to having conversations with anybody about how to help going forward. We want to create creditor committees to make sure that these things get handled in a way where everybody is represented. This is a community effort, and we are in communication with the supervisor every day. We need your help to channel this information to the courts in a way that they can avert, we can avert a liquidation in favor of a rehabilitation. The, the, the slogan or tagline we're using is, Rehabilitate, don't liquidate. Rehabilitate, don't liquidate. Savegox.com. Thank you, Adam. 
Thanks for listening to episode 102 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's episode was provided by Jackson Palmer, Eden Yago, Flavian Charlin, David Bailey, Marco Strang, Stephanie Murphy, and Adam B. Levine. Additional engineering was provided by Crystal Levine. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. Any questions or comments? Email Adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Have a good one.